Morning. Hey, daylight saving, and you seem super chipper. This is awesome. This is great. Hey, let's pray. God, we're just going to invite you right now uh, to speak to us, to encourage us, to convict us, to uh, set us free, to remind us of your goodness and your grace as we study your word together. Uh, May this be your message to your people today. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Hey, I'm not always a review guy, but I would like to do a review if you're brand new here with us or uh, like me, if you kind of have a memory that that, kind of doesn't always function. Uh, Remember, we are studying the Gospel of John this year. It's the fourth biography of Jesus that's included in the 66 books of Scripture. It's written by one of his best friends, a guy named John and closest followers. And what John has done so far in his Gospel, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, uh, he's introduced us to kind of the main themes that he's going to talk about in his gospel. Uh, we're calling that the prelude or the prologue, chapter 1, 1 through 18. John talks about Jesus as the word and Jesus as life and Jesus as light. And then the second part of his gospel, John begins to talk about some signs that point to Jesus as the word and as light and as life. Some of those signs are John the Baptist that point to Jesus. Jesus turning water into wine. It points to Jesus. And it all points to Jesus as one thing. Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And his purpose is that we would believe these things. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, have life in his name. Remember that this word believe, used 98 times in the Gospel of John, is never a it's always a verb. It's not something you have. It's something you do. And so when John begins to share this third sign now in his gospel with us, remember that his goal is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, place our active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So remember what we've done so far is the prelude. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John's introduced us to those main themes. Now we're in the book of signs. The first of signs is John the ba- first of the signs is John the Baptist. Last week, water into wine, and we talked about alcohol and all that stuff, and some of you got uncomfortable. And if you want to be even more uncomfortable, I'm glad you're here this morning, because this morning we're going to talk about angry Jesus. And that's going to make a, some of us a little bit uncomfortable. Are you so excited? Good. John chapter 2. Here we go. John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back in front of you or somewhere near to you. You can use your device. Just make sure you turn it off so it doesn't ring or buzz or whatever during the service. And if you don't have any of those things, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. We're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and unpack it and talk a little bit about what's happening. John chapter 2, verse 12. John writes this. It says, After this, that this is the water into wine thing at Cana, the wedding at Cana. So after this, he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up 
to Jerusalem. Stop there and look up at me. John uses geography in his gospel as kind of transition. So Jesus goes from the river Jordan to Cana and he performs this miracle. Now he's going from Cana to Capernaum and then to Jerusalem. And so just, I want us to kind of get a picture of what's happening with a map up here on the screen. Look up here on the, oh, sorry. We're going to read the thing in its entirety. Go back one. I messed that up, didn't I? That was my fault. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Keep reading. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen. We are going to look at that map here eventually, I promise. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written in the Old Testament now, zeal for your house will consume me. That was a prophecy about Jesus. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? On whose authority? What kind of credibility do you have to make all this ruckus in the temple? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, so they looked back through the lens of the resurrection, they remembered that he had said this, and they did what? Say this word with me. It's our key word. Ready? Believed. The scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So today, we're dealing with angry Jesus. <laughs> That's who we're dealing with. Jesus comes into the temple, he sees the situation, and he begins to turn over tables. He makes a whip out of cords. He gets ticked. He gets peeved. He gets upset. He gets frustrated. He gets mad. He gets angry. And for those of us who grew up in the church, like me, I grew up in the church, and even for those of us who didn't grow up in the church, we are a little uncomfortable with angry Jesus, aren't we? Because we want the Lion of Judah to have no claws and no teeth. Uh, we, we, we want kind of this monastic, serene figure that's kind of calm all the time, but Jesus experienced anger. He experienced deep passion. He experienced zeal for his father's house. And because we're uncomfortable with it, We've created these images of Jesus that take away all of kind of the anger of John 2. And this, the synoptics also record this incident. It happened three years later again. And the synoptics record the same incident where Jesus gets angry. And I wanted to share with you a couple of the images of Jesus that I kind of grew up looking at that kind of take any level of anger away from him. They're up here on the screen. Here's the first one. Did anybody grow up with this image of Jesus? Did anybody see this? It was very popular in Baptist churches, right? Does it look like this guy could ever get angry about anything? He seems so calm. And he also has blonde hair, which is a little bit disconcerting because it's first century Palestine, for crying out loud. Next one. Is, is that not creepy or what? That is weird. Like, I don't even know what's going on there. This guy doesn't look like he could get angry. What about this next one? Jesus is wearing lipstick, apparently. That's, that's, a, that's not a good thing. And, and again, long blonde hair. My favorite character on The Simpsons, Apu, he says, there are so many things wrong with this picture, I'm not sure which part to correct first. There's a lot of stuff happening. And if you want Jesus to be wearing makeup, look at this next picture. He's wearing guy liner, apparently. 
He looks like he should be playing for Prince in the Revolution, doesn't he? Like he, this is, this is not a Jesus that we like to encounter, angry Jesus. And so we've created these images and these pictures of Jesus, either real images that, like this one or, or images in our head that Jesus was this serene, very calm figure. Yes, he was kind. Yes, he was gentle. Yes, he was gracious. But there are times when we encounter an angry Jesus. And today we encounter angry Jesus. And some of you might be thinking, in John chapter 2, we just read the whole thing. I never saw that word anger. I saw this phrase, zeal for your father's house will consume me, quite literally, eat me up on the inside. And we saw him flipping over tables and making a whip out of cords, but it never told us, John 2 never told us that Jesus was angry. So just so you know, I'm not blowing smoke, I'm telling you the truth, that Jesus did get angry. There's a situation in Mark chapter 3 where there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus is about to heal him and it's on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, come to Jesus and go, look, you can't heal on the Sabbath day. It's a day that you're not supposed to do work. You're not allowed to heal today. And Jesus looks at them and says, what should I do? Should I obey the law or should I have compassion on this man? You tell me. And they stood in silence because they were stumped. And Jesus responds this way, Mark chapter 3, he says, and he looked around at them with, say this word with me, anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus got angry. Jesus never sinned, therefore anger isn't always sin. You with me? Is everybody with me on the connection there? Jesus got angry. We just saw it in Mark chapter 3. We saw it in John chapter 2. Jesus got angry, but Jesus never sinned. Jesus never stepped outside of the will of God. Jesus never rebelled from God's perfect plan. Therefore, anger isn't always sin. There are times when it is, but it's not always sin. I'm so convinced of this, and the Bible is so convinced of this, that anger isn't always sin, that it actually tells us, commands us even, to be angry. Did you know that? The Bible commands us to be angry. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. So your anger isn't always sin. This verb here that Paul uses in, uh, in his letter to the church at Ephesus is the exact same word that Mark uses of Jesus in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, it's orge, and here in uh, Ephesians 4, it's orgizo. It's the second person imperative. Be angry, get ticked, get peeved, get upset, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. So we're just going to pause here really quickly, and I just want to hopefully free some people up in the room this morning, because some of you are like me, and you have a guilt complex when it comes to anger. I remember a conversation I had with a guy one time, a friend of mine, and he asked me about something that was going on in my life, and he said, are you angry about that? And I said, well, no, I'm not angry. I mean, I'm frustrated, I'm hot, I'm peeved, I'm ticked, I'm upset, but I'm not angry. Because all of those other words don't appear in the scripture, but anger does, and so I felt guilty about being angry. Like, it's a, it's a guilt thing. But if Jesus got angry... And the Bible commands us to get angry. Here's my conclusion this morning. Just because I'm angry doesn't mean I'm sinning. You with me on that? Now, some of you, for some of you in the room, you're like, okay, great, I get that. But for some of you, this right here will free you up. This is all you needed to hear this morning. Because there have been some things done to you in your life by a spouse or an ex-spouse, by an abusive parent, 
by an alcoholic sibling. Someone has abused you. Someone has verbally, sexually, physically abused you. There have been some injustices and some wrongs done to you. And you have told yourself, I am not allowed to be angry about those things. Or you see some brokenness and some injustice in the world. And you've told yourself, I'm not allowed to be angry about those things. Because anger is sin. And I'm a Christian and so I'm not going to sin. And I want to free you up this morning. Just because you're angry does not mean you're in sin. You need to hear that this morning. Jesus got angry. The Bible commands us to be angry. Just because you're angry does not mean that you're in sin. But there are really two kinds of anger. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. There's helpful anger and there's destructive anger. There's anger that we can harness and use to propel us towards good things. And there's anger that becomes rooted in our hearts and it becomes bitterness and grudges and we act out against people. Anger can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. It's going to be one or the other. It's never going to be neutral. It's going to either be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. That's our bottom line truth this morning. So if you're jotting that down, we're going to watch in John chapter 2 as we unpack it verse by verse. We're going to watch Jesus get angry and use his anger as a stepping stone to help him accomplish the mission of God on the planet. To help him accomplish the redemptive plan of God. To move him forward rather than cripple him and cause him to hold a grudge and get bitter and do all the things that we sometimes do when we get angry. And so what I want to offer you today is three questions Three really easy questions when you experience this emotion of anger to help you decipher, to determine, to discern the difference. Am I feeling righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Am I feeling justified anger or unjustified anger? Am I feeling helpful anger or destructive anger? Is my anger right now going to be a stepping stone? To help me accomplish God's purposes for me? Is it going to be a stepping stone to move forward in the sanctification process? To become more like Jesus and join God in his redemptive plan on the planet? Or is it going to be a stumbling block for me and trip me up? Three really simple questions. You with me? Great. We're going to ask those questions. Here we go. And we're going to start in John chapter 2 verse 12. It's up here on the screen. Jesus or John writes this of Jesus. After this he went down to Capernaum. With his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is where I derailed a minute ago. We'll come back to this, is that John uses geography in his gospel to make transitions. So Jesus went from the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing and he went to Cana and performed a miracle there. There's now been a second shift in geography. Jesus has gone from Cana to Capernaum and then to Jerusalem. Now John doesn't mention Bethsaida, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So Jesus goes from Cana to Jerusalem Uh, through Capernaum by way of Bethsaida. And if that just kind of washed over your head, look up here on the screen, there's a map, okay? Jesus is up here in Cana. It's first century Palestine. Jesus is up here in Cana, and he turns water into wine at a wedding. 
he travels to Capernaum with his mother and brother and a couple of his disciples. And he travels through Bethsaida. John doesn't mention Bethsaida, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And he comes down the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. It would have been about a three-day journey. And he shows up there during Passover. You might have noticed a couple things that we just read. It says that Jesus went from Cana down to Capernaum, down to Capernaum, down to Capernaum. And then he goes from Capernaum up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Except that early in the first century, they didn't use north, south, east, and west as up and down. They used uh, elevation as up and down. So if you go from Cana to Capernaum, which is near the Sea of Galilee, you're going down in elevation. So you literally go down to Capernaum. Jerusalem was set up on a hill. Capernaum is by the Sea of Galilee. So you literally go up in elevation to Jerusalem. So Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, and it's the Passover of the Jews, John tells us. Now, the Passover was interesting because it was about a week-long celebration, a couple days on the front end for travel and a couple days on the back end for travel. And so for those two weeks, give or take, in the first century, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled by between six and eight times. About 100,000 people, give or take, depending on what estimate that you're looking at, about 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem in the first century. So when it swells to six or eight times that, you're talking about between 600 and 800,000 people. Could you imagine Toronto swelling to six or eight times the population? We would be the largest city in the world. We'd be even larger than Tokyo, which is the largest city in the world. If that happened, the city is absolutely crawling with people, people camping out, people trying to find a place to stay. I mean, it is packed to the hilt. And the first thing Jesus did is he goes to the temple. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. He found those selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Now, here's the deal. John doesn't tell us why Jesus is angry. We could tell that he's angry because of his actions, but John doesn't come out and say, Jesus was angry because. But he does give us some context clues as to why Jesus is angry. So stick with me here, because this is our first question to determine whether our anger is a stepping stone or a stumbling block. We'll get there here in a minute. The first thing he tells us is that there are money changers in the temple. There are money changers in the temple. Now, when you came from a very far distance into Jerusalem and into the temple, you would have to pay what's called a temple tax. It was between half a shekel and two shekels, just kind of depending. And the shekel was a Hebrew or an, um, uh, yeah, a, a Hebrew denomination of coin. And so if you had a Roman coin on you, you would have to exchange that currency like you do at the airport, you know? you got to exchange currency for the country that you're visiting. So in order to pay the tax, you would have to trade in a Roman coin and get a Jewish coin. That's why the money changers are there. Now, this is not abnormal, and this is a good thing. In fact, people needed money changers to serve them in this way so that they could pay the temple tax. But what we know from history is these money changers were also thieves, <laughs> greedy, price gougers. Like, we were flying a guy up here to do some consulting work for us during the NBA All-Star game. Remember when the All-Star game was here? 
So this guy was flying from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is typically a $250 ticket. And the weekend of the NBA All-Star Game, I looked online to see what a ticket would cost to get up here. It was $2,700. Did you imagine that? We did not fly him up that weekend. We chose a different weekend to bring him up because the airlines were gouging us, right, for money. Has anybody ever tried to get an Uber during an Uber surge? Uber is surging, and it's like you're going to pay $9,000 for like a mile Uber trip. It's horrible. They, it's price gouging. See, this is what's happening there. The, these people, these money changers, are there, and they're providing a helpful service, but they're fleecing the flock. They're leveraging God for their own use and for their own desire. That's the first reason why Jesus is mad. The second reason why he's mad is in this clue, temple. It says that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep. Now stick with me here because this is critical. It says that he found them in the temple and he drove them out of the temple. And then later in the text, Jesus is asked the question. He says, what, what's your credibility here? And Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Did you catch it? Well, in both cases, that word temple is translated into English as temple, except that it's two different words in the original Greek. Those two words are hieron and naos. When Jesus came into the hieron, he drove the, the, the uh, oxen sellers and the money changers out of the hieron. And then when he, says, uh, when he says, destroy this temple, it's naos. He uses this Greek word naos. Now, they both mean temple, hence the reason that they're translated into the English as temple. But how many of you have a New International version of the Bible in front of you right now? Anybody have that version? In those first couple of verses, in the, new, in the NIV, the, the word hieron is translated temple courts. Because originally, these two Greek words, although they mean the exact same thing in a literal translation, they had some implicit meaning with them. And hieron mean, meant temple courts, and naos meant the holiest of place in the temple, the, the most holy place, in fact. So let's look up here on the screen. Look at this map. I want to show you what Jesus is talking about here. Outside, these huge courtyards, just right in here, does everybody see that? It says Gentiles Courtyard. This is the Hieron. This is where Jesus sees the money changers and the people selling oxen and sheep and all that stuff. This is where he drives them out. And when he says, tear down this Naos, he's talking about this part of the temple, the most holy place, where only the high priest was able to go in once a year. And he says, destroy this, and I will rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about the temple of his body. Now stick with me here because this is important. Jesus comes into the temple courts and he sees Gentiles, outsiders, non-Jews that have traveled from long distances, many of them, and the reason they've traveled to Jerusalem during Passover is to worship God. That's the reason they're there. And the only place that they could do that was in the Gentiles' courtyard, the Hieron. They were not able to go inside any further. They certainly weren't able to go into the Naos. This was the only option that they had, this huge courtyard out here. And so when Jesus comes in and he sees money changers there and people that have turned the temple into a marketplace, he immediately makes a whip of cords and drives them out of the Gentiles' courtyard. Now listen so close. What has happened here is that insiders have prevented 
outsiders from worshiping. Those who were part of the family of God, instead of setting their money changers tables up outside of the temple, which they could have done, instead of selling sacrifices outside of the temple, and that was a very normal thing, because if you travel from a long distance, you don't bring an oxen with you, people would come and purchase one there. That was an okay thing. Jesus is ticked because the insiders have torpedoed the worship of outsiders. Could you imagine coming into a place to worship and it's like Yorkdale Mall? Like that's a very challenging place to worship. And the only place that they had set all of those tables up was in the Gentiles courtyard. Jesus is mad because the people of of God have prevented outsiders from coming before the throne of God. Now, that's crazy. You know why? Because most of the time, these days, the Christian church gets mad when we make it easy for outsiders to worship. Jesus gets mad when they made it hard for outsiders to worship. So mad, in fact, that he turns tables over and makes a whip out of cords. So here's my first question when it comes to anger when it comes to making sense of our anger and, and determining whether or not it's righteous or unrighteous, here's my first question, simply this. What's my motivation? What's my motivation? See, what motivated Jesus to get mad was the fact that outsiders were being prevented from worshiping. The worship space that they had been given, the Gentiles' courtyard that was supposed to be sacred, supposed to be a place of reverence and awe where they could come before God, had been turned into a shopping mall. And Jesus is ticked. So when you get angry, what's your motivation? And men and women of God, we have to be ruthless with our own motivation. Why am I mad? Is this about me or is this about God? (laughs) Is this an insider deal or is this an outsider deal? Is this anger that I feel welling up inside of me, am I angry because someone of a different sexual preference than me or someone of a different religious background than me or someone with different convictions than me is being held outside of the community of faith and being pushed away from worship? Or am I mad because there's a wall there? What's my motivation? And you might think I'm getting a little bit too aggressive with some of these things, but men and women of God, I told you you were going to be uncomfortable today. This is why Jesus is mad. This is why he's ticked, because the insiders had built a wall that kept the outsiders out, a metaphorical wall by way of money changers and oxen and sheep sellers in the temple. Now, I'm not affirming any of those lifestyle choices. I'm not affirming any of that stuff. Neither would Jesus. But he would also say, you know what? You know what makes me mad? is when we hold those folks outside and say, you clean up your life and then you can come. You convert and then you can come. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how it's gonna work. So much so that he makes a whip out of cords again and flips tables over. We have to be ruthless with our motivation. Is this about God or is it about me? Let's keep reading in the text and we'll post question number two. Here we go. John says, 
when he sees all this stuff, when Jesus sees all this, he says, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, in the original language in the Greek, that word and is not emphasized. I've emphasized it here so that you can see Jesus' response is tempered and controlled and it changes based on three different groups. Do you see it? Watch this, watch this. For this first group, he makes a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So the only people that would be able to afford a sheep or an ox to sacrifice would have been the rich. And the people selling sheep and oxen also would have been rich. And so Jesus gets really, really assertive and really aggressive here. His anger moves him to action and he drives them out of the temple. But... With the money changers, there's no whip involved anymore. He overturns their tables and he pours out their coins. He says, you guys get out of here, but the whip has been put down. Just so you know, the whip in the first passage, he's not whipping the people. He's whipping the sheep and the oxen. And their money starts to run out of the temple and they follow their money. That's how he drives them out. Here, he poured out the coins and overturned their tables. Now look at this third group of people. Those who sold the pigeons. Now those who sold pigeons would have been poor because they were selling the sacrifice of the poor. Remember when Mary brings Jesus to be dedicated at the temple? All she can afford is two pigeons. That was the sacrifice of the poor. And Jesus doesn't use a whip. He doesn't turn their tables over. He doesn't open up the cages and go fly, birds fly. What does he say? He says, just take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. He just told them. See, three different responses to three different groups. Equally angry, his emotion wells up inside of him, but he tempers his response based on the group of people and based on the context. Do you see it? So question number two is this. What's my response? When I get angry with someone, what is my response? And I've got three questions, three kind of follow-up questions to help us uh, determine whether or not our response is a stepping stone or a stumbling block, whether or not our anger is a stepping stone or a stumbling block. Here it is. Is it warranted? Is my response warranted? Did what this person did or what they said that I'm angry about, do they deserve it? Is my anger justified? Can I give you a tip on this one? Ready? Most of the time when people ask, is your anger warranted? Is your anger justified? What do we say? Well, yes, absolutely it is, right? Because I am ticked. And I can give you all the reasons why my anger is justified. Here's my tip, ready? Ask somebody else. (laughs) Because they are removed from the situation emotionally. They're not caught up in your anger. And they can tell you, yeah, you know what? It's warranted. Your anger is warranted. It's justified. Makes sense. Or they can tell you, no, 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 you're out to lunch here. You need to settle down. This is not warranted. It's not justified. Jesus' anger and his response to those three different groups was warranted. Second, is it tempered? Is it tempered? Is it controlled? Let me say this a different way. Is my anger controlling me or am I controlling my anger? 
Is my anger helping me to move the mission of God forward? Am I angry at injustice in the world? Am I angry at brokenness in the world? And is it tempered? Anger, and all emotions for that matter, are really great servants, but they're really horrible masters. When we begin to get controlled by our anger rather than controlling our anger and allowing it to motivate us and move us toward action, when our anger is not tempered, now we've moved over into unrighteous anger, stumbling block anger. Here's a final question. Is my response balanced? Is my response balanced? I love the fact that Jesus responds to three different groups of people three different ways. His emotion is the same, but his response is different. I don't know if you caught this in Mark chapter 3, but when Jesus is angry with the Pharisees, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at them in anger and he was what? Grieved at their hardness of heart. Isn't that interesting? That at the same time Jesus is feeling anger towards them, and rightfully so, he's also grieved, he's also sad that they're rejecting the plan of God and rejecting the grace of God. Listen, if your anger is not balanced with some compassion, it's probably unrighteous anger. If your anger is not balanced with some grief, it's probably unrighteous anger. If you look at a situation and the only thing that you feel is just mad, and there's nothing in your heart that goes, but my heart also breaks because that person has rebelled from God. My heart also breaks because there's injustice in the world. My heart also breaks. And you, you don't have that my heart also breaks thing going on. If it's not balanced, now we got a problem. So what's my response? Is it warranted? Is it tempered? And is it balanced? Here we go. Keep reading. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? Good question. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Stop there. Just, this, is, this is free this morning. Everything for the disciples made sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus. You see it? When he was raised from the dead, then it became clear what he was saying when he said, this temple gets destroyed, I will raise it up in three days. Then it became clear. Just for you, everything in scripture and everything in your life will be crystal clear in light of the resurrection. That's my free advice this morning, okay? His disciples remembered that he said this, and they did what? Say this word with me. Believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. They put their active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, they had life or received life in his name. Now, here's the interesting thing, and this just dawned on me like Friday or Saturday of this week. I began to think, what is it that makes Jesus anger okay? What is it that makes it not sin? His response was tempered. His response was balanced. Yes, that's true. Yes, it was justified. Yes, he had a proper motivation, all these things. But watch this. In order to fix the problem that he's angry about, check it. In order to fix the problem that Jesus is angry about, he had to sacrifice his body. 
Jesus is mad that the Gentiles are not able to draw near to God. Jesus is mad that they're being kept at bay. Jesus is angry that their worship has been torpedoed. And he says, that's it, none of this. No more of this. I'm going to fix this. And the way that he fixes it is he offers his body as a living sacrifice on the cross in order that anyone and everyone from all nations can be drawn near to God. And the curtain is torn between that outer court and the Holy of Holies so that anyone can approach the throne of God and anyone can enter the Holy of Holies. Jesus' anger, listen to this, this, is, this, this blows my mind. It motivated him to sacrifice. Do you see it? He looks at the situation, he's just like, this is so unjust, this is so wrong, this is so unfair. I will give my body as a living sacrifice. Now I am the temple by which anyone and everyone can come to the Father. So here's my question for you. Does your anger compel you to sacrifice? Does your anger compel you to sacrifice? Does my anger compel me to sacrifice? Or does it compel me to whine and complain? (laughs) Does it compel me to get bitter? Does it compel me to hold a grudge? Does my anger compel me to gossip? See, this is not righteous anger. If you look at your life and you think, what am I most angry about right now? And there is nothing about that anger that has moved you to lay down your life in order to fix the situation, in order to move the redemptive plan of God forward, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's not righteous anger. Jesus experienced righteous anger that compelled him to make a sacrifice in order to fix it. Does your anger compel you to sacrifice? Let's finish the text, and I want to tell you one more thing. Here we go. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in Man. Next week, Dave Lewis is going to be preaching about one of those men that Jesus knew his heart, a man named Nicodemus, a much less uh, difficult text to preach on than water into wine or Jesus getting angry. I gave Dave the easy one, and I took the fun ones. But here's my, here's my last question for us this morning, and here's my final encouragement. I read a story this week of a 14-year-old boy who was traveling... Uh, to Atlanta for a speech competition. He was uh, really good at public speaking and argumentation, and he was engaged in this competition there. And he traveled the 90-minute uh, minute journey with his teacher to uh, this competition in Atlanta. And it was the deep south in uh, deep southern U.S. in the 40s. And so this young man at 14 years old spoke, uh, and the title of his speech was The Negro and the Constitution. And he won. He won the speech competition in Atlanta. And after a very, very long day, he and his teacher got back on the bus and sat down. The first stop in this 90-minute journey, uh, the bus picked up a bunch of white people. They got on the bus and immediately demanded that he and his teacher stand up because they were both black and give them their seats. Now, they've been on their feet all day and they were exhausted. 
But his teacher said, look, we've got to obey the law. We've got to stand up and give them our seats. This young boy, after the fact, said that he was filled with righteous indignation. He was mad. He was angry at what was going on. But he had to stand up, and they stood on their feet for the last 90 minutes of that bus ride because white people made him stand up. In 1964, when he told the story, he said, it was the angriest I have ever been in my life at 14 years old. It was the angriest I'd ever been. But that anger became a stepping stone and not a stumbling block for that young man. He became a pastor and a minister, became a social rights activist. And we can thank Martin Luther King Jr. that my wife and my daughter don't have to use separate bathrooms in the U.S. anymore or don't have to use separate water fountains, or that we can all sit together at the same restaurant. You see, Martin Luther King saw injustice in the world, even at 14 years old, and his anger compelled him to fix it. His anger compelled him even to sacrifice his own life, just as Jesus did. His anger compelled him to do something about it. It didn't cripple him. It didn't cause him to get bitter and upset and gossip and whatever. It compelled him to make a difference in the world. I, for one, am thrilled that Martin Luther King Jr. got angry. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I, for one, am thrilled that God got angry and that Jesus got angry. You know why? Because he said, this is not how I made it. This is broke. This is wrong. Death, dying, disease, that's wrong. That's, that's broken. I'm ticked about that. I created it perfect and you guys messed it up. And his anger compelled him to sacrifice his own son in order to fix it. And I'm thrilled about that. And can I just tell you one more thing as we close here? You know the world needs us to get angry. The world needs us to get angry. The world needed God to get angry about the situation he saw. The world needed Martin Luther King Jr. to get angry about the situation he saw. The world needs the church to get angry at what we see in terms of injustice and unfairness in the world, brokenness in the world, the way we treat the unborn, uh, the, the way we respond to the poor, to transgender, to homosexuals. We, we need to get angry about that stuff and go, no, 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 no. I'm going to lay down my own life, take up my own cross, and fix it and get after it. We've got to respond to poverty. We've got to respond to homelessness. We've got to respond to the brokenness that we see in our city. And sometimes the anger that we feel can become a stepping stone, if you're careful, if you ask the right questions, and not a stumbling block that compels us to act. That's righteous versus unrighteous anger. Stepping stone anger versus stumbling block anger. Let's pray. God, perhaps this morning we could as a congregation obey Ephesians 4 where you tell us to be angry and in our anger do not sin. Teach us to ask the right questions, oh God. Teach us to be angry at the injustice we see in the world. Teach us to be angry at the brokenness we see in the world. Teach us, God, when that emotion wells up inside of us to get ticked at the wrongs we see done in our city, in our families, in our neighborhood. And teach us, God, to be agents of redemption and grace. 
to use that anger as a stepping stone to move toward your mission and your vision in the world. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling for us righteous anger, stepping stone anger. Teach us to ask the right questions and live in the same fashion. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Hey, let's stand and respond together as we close.